Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest speaker is the founder and managing partner of the KRI Partners and KRI Group. He has more than 24 years of significant real estate banking and principal investing experience. Here to discuss about making it happen on your target market and the metrics that they look into when expanding into new markets. Please welcome Ken Gee. All right. Today we have Ken Gee with us. He is founder and president of KRI Partners and is a licensed Ohio certified public accountant. Ken, thanks so much for being on the show with us. I know that's a brief introduction. Do you want to tell us maybe a little bit more about yourself before we get into this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. A little bit about myself. I grew up in a small town called Toledo, Ohio. If anybody's familiar with MASH, you might have heard of Max Klinger and the, the Tony Paco connection. I grew up there, went to Toledo for my undergrad, got a degree in finance. Then I decided I wanted to move to Cleveland. I moved to Cleveland, became a commercial lender, spent five years as a commercial lender while I was going to school at night and got my CPA. You know, Got the training I needed to become a CPA. Then I went to work for Deloitte for seven years. Spent seven years at Deloitte in the tax practice, M&A, did a lot of DD, due diligence and tax planning and stuff like that. It was when I was at Deloitte that I decided really, you know, if you know much about accountants, they work really hard. And I was working really hard and I didn't seem to be getting ahead. You know, I kept trying to figure out how I was going to put my kids through school and all this stuff. Accountants don't get to spend a lot of time with their families. And uh, a lot of things were eating away at me. And I finally just decided, you know what? it was time that I figure out real estate. And that's when I got into a multifamily real estate when I was at Deloitte, believe it or not. I know I studied accounting for a little bit in undergrad and it was really, really challenging and a massive workload. So I hear you when uh, you say that accounts work really hard. And I quickly learned that I didn't want to work that hard, (laughs) but I love the number side of real estate. So I naturally fell into it as well. You were mentioning how being a CPA helps you every day in your investing. You want to share a little bit more about what you've learned and how that helps? It's interesting. As when I made that decision that I wanted to change my life and stop working for somebody else, I started trying to figure out how to do this. Should I buy singles? Should I buy doubles? You know, I started to figure out how I was going to make money. And believe it or not, the reason I landed in multifamily was because with singles and doubles and some of the smaller properties, it isn't as easy to predict value as it is when you get to multifamily. I'm leading going somewhere with this, right? (laughs) So if you look at a multifamily property, it's about numbers. It is about rents. It's about expenses. It's about running a business. It's about that business's ability to generate cash flow. Then if I could find a way to change that cash flow, then what would happen is I would make the property more valuable. So the numbers made that predictable, if you will. And that's what actually led me to apartments over 
the singles and the doubles like most people start out. So it was that accounting background that actually led, you know, just kept me in the numbers and figuring out what payroll should be and how I can move income and all that kind of stuff. All that led me to a multifamily and that's where I've stayed since then. You know, to this day, the multifamily world is about numbers. It just is. You can say it's about a lot of other things, but if that property doesn't generate cash flow, you're going to be hard pressed to get value for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good story. I mean, the reason why most people get into, you know, the singles or the doubles is because I feel like they feel like they have more of a handle on what the value is. Because when you walk into a single family home, you know, you kind of perceive the value. And it's so unique to hear from an accountant that it felt less, I guess, apparent. And then looking at a spreadsheet, the value looked way more apparent than, you know, walking into, say, a SFR, a uh, duplex, and just actually kind of experiencing the value. And yeah, so the difference was converting that emotional side. You know, if you've got a single family home and you go to sell it, it's going to depend on is it a nice looking property? That's fine. But it doesn't matter if it generates cash flow. In fact, most people buying that single family home from you, they're probably not going to use it for cash flow. Well, it's all about their experience and how you can do work at the property and give them a good experience at the home versus maximizing the spreadsheet or, or pulling a lever yeah. and decreasing the expenses yeah. or maybe turning up the income a little bit. And Yeah. So, so I didn't want to be dependent on that emotional side of a buyer, right? When you go to the multifamily world, the numbers are what they are. You know, maybe some folks early on in their multifamily career, are a little bit emotional about it. They kind of fall in love with it. But the reality of it is the bank's not going to lend you money if you're grossly overpaying. <laughs> They're just not. The bank's going to look at numbers. I like the fact that I could do something now that I could be very deliberate about and then drive value through increasing cash flow. And that ended up being the business plan that we have followed for the last 25 years. Yeah. A lot of our listeners here probably don't have the background of a CPA. You know, it sounds like that really was influential in understanding how the numbers work. But like, can you tell us kind of like what you had to learn or what you had to do to kind of make that next step from going from like, you know, essentially a W-2 to really your own business? Yeah. So, and I help people do this a lot now. People come to me a lot and, you know, how do you get started? What do I do? And the number one thing that I did, remember, this is back in the late 90s. There were no podcasts to help us figure this stuff out. <laughs> there are very few seminars. You know, there's so many resources now. They did not exist back then. So the way I did it was I rolled up my sleeves and I said, okay, I have this apartment community and I would look at income statement after income statement. I said, all right, what do you need to run an apartment building? And I would just detail out the expenses. Okay, well, I have pest control. Well, how much is that going to cost? How did I figure that out? Don't laugh, right? But this is what you did back in the 90s. You picked up a phone and you, you called you, the pest control Did company. you use the yellow pages to find someone and then picked up the phone? Well, I actually <laughs> used the local apartment association because they had good. Yeah, look at you. Yeah, but yeah, I might remember the yellow pages. You might not. But uh, the apartment association gave me good names. So I called general pest control and I said, hey, guys, I'm going to buy this apartment complex. How much should I budget for pest control? And they helped me understand that. So I went through line by line. What does it take to operating an apartment building? In the beginning, you didn't really need the accounting knowledge. It's just like building a home budget, right? For your personal house, 
You know, how much is it going to cost to mow the lawn? How much is it going to cost for water and sewer and electricity? And I went through and figured all those out. And in the multifamily world, you can prove out every one of those numbers except for repairs and maintenance because you just don't know what's going to break next, right? And then you have to use some generalities. But that's how I did it. When I made that switch, I just rolled up my sleeves and figured it out one by one what it was going to cost. And then on the rent side, I didn't have Google Maps back then. All right. But I drove around the neighborhood and I stopped at an apartment complex and I'd shop it and see what their apartments you know, were renting for compared to what the one I was looking at. So I did a legitimate real life rent survey. See, when you take the time to do that work, it's not about accounting anymore. It's about, well, I know what rent should be. And that's $100 more than what I'm getting now, right? It becomes a less about accounting and a lot more about, hey, I understand this business because I understand exactly how much money I'm going to have left over at the end of the day. And driving those comps, did you, you, I probably actually went into those apartments because like those listings at the time probably weren't online. You couldn't see pictures. So you really had to get your eyes on it right. to see like, are they laminate countertops? Are they granite? Is it in crappy What's shape? Pool Is it look good like? shape? Yeah. 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 That's exactly what we did. Yeah. There weren't, yeah. Now doing rent surveys is easy. You just hop around the internet and you can see pretty much everything. With Google Maps, you can Google drive a whole neighborhood. You couldn't do that back in the 90s. So it was the hard way. But, you know, fast forward to today, it really helps you understand it a lot better. So what I don't want your listeners to do is get hung up on, oh, you know, this guy, he knows accounting really well. You know, I don't have a chance. That's not true. It's just about if you can figure out cash in and cash out, which most people can, that's really all you really need to understand. If we go to accounting, like accounting is really just a bunch of plus and minuses. So if you can add and subtract, yep. like you can do yep. this type of accounting is what you're telling us, right? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Yep. Yeah. Well, and in taking that time, when you were driving around and looking at those comps, Chris and I recently experienced this. We were in Jacksonville and there's certain mm-hmm. neighborhoods that are significantly different than other neighborhoods too. <laughs> Where I think that a lot of people can get themselves in trouble these days. Like if you drive it on Google Maps, like you don't necessarily get that feel for what location it is. I mean, even within the span of five to 10 blocks, it can be significantly different. And that's true, not just in Jacksonville. We've been in Jacksonville. We've owned in Jacksonville and managed in Jacksonville. So I know what you're saying, but it's not just Jacksonville that's like that. I mean, almost every city in America is like that. And you're right. You have to drive around. And what I want people to do, what I do when I'm looking at a property is I'll stay in a hotel near the property. And I don't stay in the Hilton, the top of the line, you know, Ritz. I don't do that. I want to stay in a Hampton Inn nearby. I want to see what it's like to walk around a Thursday night at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, go to the local McDonald's, see what's going on there. You learn a lot by just living for a few minutes in that environment because, the people that you want to attract to rent, they know the neighborhood already. <laughs> they know whether or not they're going to want to live in that neighborhood, right? They don't have to do the research because they've lived that research. You just need to make sure that you understand it. And you're right. That's interesting that you bring that up because the number one thing that I see new people miss in this business is not understanding what a tough neighborhood looks and feels like. And they say they don't want to buy in a tough neighborhood Yet the property they buy, you're just like, wow, how did you not realize that? It's taking it from that concept to seeing it in real life. You know, it's hard, right? It's hard to understand what that looks like. And, you know, a property at 11 a.m. on a Saturday morning looks very different than that same property at 11 p.m. on Saturday. 
right? So you got to make sure that you figure that out. And so that's what I want people to do. Because if they do that, they'll generally keep themselves out of a lot of trouble. I think that that's great advice. We're in contract on a 50 unit deal here in Portland. And, you know, being a property manager here, I'm like, I wonder what it would be like if I stayed at that like Econo Lodge across the street and mm-hmm. see what it would be like actually, you know, not during the day. Yeah, you learn a lot. I don't know that I would stay in an Econo Lodge, but uh, <laughs> you, you do learn a lot. <laughs> you do learn a lot. So do you want to just walk us through kind of how you got started? Like what was your first deal like? And then maybe what's a more recent deal that you bought or sold? Yeah, yeah so the first deal I did, I was at Deloitte. It was 1997. I had my story really starts with my daughter. When my daughter was really young, I used to do her middle of the night feeding when I was at Deloitte because the only time we got to spend together. And I really enjoyed that time. Well, the problem is after a while, I started realizing, wait a minute, this is the only time I get to spend with you. This is driving me nuts. And I started thinking, yeah, I want to put you guys, you and your brother through school. I want to do all these things with our family and spend more time. And I don't see it happening, right? I had gone to school, got a great job, did everything I was supposed to do, but it wasn't happening. So that's when I decided, okay, enough is enough. I've got to figure this out. So I went to apartment association meetings, went to, back then they called it independent rental owners courses. And I would network with the speakers at these events, at the apartment association events, and just trying to learn and understand the business. So fast forward some period of time, I did find my first deal. It was a 28-unit building in a part of Cleveland called Shaker Square, if you're probably not familiar with it, but it's uh, near Case Western Reserve University and the Cleveland Clinic. You might've heard the Cleveland Clinic, that area. So 28-unit building. The seller was kind enough to take back a note for 10% of the purchase price. And he helped me find a lender who would lend me. So I put 10% down myself and my in-laws. He took a note back for 10 and then we got an 80% loan and I bought this property. And the crazy story was I had been a lender for five years. So I understood credit and all that kind of stuff. And I started getting applications and they were all bad credit. And I thought, uh oh, <laughs> oh, I am toast because I just put every penny I had into this building and now I can't get good people to live there. And so I met this wonderful lady. She was with Shaker Heights, the city. Her name was Karen. I won't use her last name. But she said to me, she says, Ken, you have to build it and they will come. She says, let me show you your property from the eyes of a renter. She says, your kitchen's old and this is that. And I thought, I said, Karen, I just spent every penny I had to buy this stupid place. And you're telling me now that I should spend five grand on a kitchen and it will make the difference. Ken, I'm telling you, you build it, they will come. So I did it. I put it on my credit card. I renovated a kitchen. So when I bought the property, we were at 415 a month in rents. As soon as I did what Karen told me to do, I was at 599 and the apps were good. I learned so many lessons from that. That's what turned me into a value add investor. Add value to your property and it will be worth more and people will come. So I got you know, almost $200 a month rent increase. I understood what she meant after I saw it actually happen. And I learned that good people, they won't look to the really cheap properties. Why? Because they know that they're probably not the type of properties they want to live in. So my rents were actually so low that the good people wouldn't even think about looking at my place. So after I made it nice, we were able to rent out a huge sigh of relief. I went on to buy a couple more properties. 
And then about three years in that same general area, by the way, because I really wanted to get to know the market. Fast forward three years and I sold those three properties. And this was the game changer for me. I had sold them and made over half a million dollars in profit. So here I am at working at Deloitte, working like a dog. And I did this little real estate thing on the side mm-hmm. and actually put half a million dollars in the bank. From that point on, I said, all right, this is lights out. I said before, you know, I couldn't figure out how I was going to put my son and daughter through school without debt. Couldn't figure out how I was going to stop working so much. Well, I figured it out. <laughs> I not only had a plan, <laughs> but I knew it would work because I just did it. So that then, obviously, once you make that kind of money, this was back in 2000. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but it was even more money 22 years ago that, you know, I just continued on this path of multifamily. So now fast forward to today, we've done multiple syndications. We've done a private equity fund, a blind pool fund. And now we're on our second fund. The last fund, we raised about 16 and a half million, deployed it into three assets in different parts of Florida. And now we're on our second fund, raising money for that to take advantage of what we think are going to be some great opportunities in the multifamily market, just because rates are going up and some folks might not have done as good a job as they should have protected themselves against rate increase. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this because you are a CPA. Like when you got that 500K, yeah. like what did you do to mitigate your taxes? Nothing. I paid the capital gains tax. It was Which still, was 15%. I mean, compared to ordinary income, it was still a lot lower. I don't remember what the rates were, <laughs> but I just paid the tax. I mean, at that point, remember, see, if you rewind the story back to prior to selling those assets, until you've actually done it, you aren't really sure you're going to be able to actually do it. So, you know, now I proactively plan, we do things, but I wasn't about to proactively plan to make a half million dollars because quite honestly, I don't think I believed it could actually happen back then. (laughs) Okay. I mean, once you made the money, then I realized I just had to pay the tax and move on. So, It's really different when you actually make it happen. Once you know you can do this, then you're okay with putting the cart before the horse and things like that. But, you know, prior to that, remember, I didn't know that I was going to net out half a million bucks. It blew my mind. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through Offsite Professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done have freedom in your time, and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. My question is, is like, what made you sell those properties? I mean, they must have been cash flowing very, very well. And why sell? That's That's a really insightful question. So this little area of Cleveland called Shaker Square, it was near the clinic. And there was a time when everybody on that side of town thought Shaker Square was just going to explode for whatever reason. I don't remember. Oh, I think they had had the square itself was a group of retail and it had retail and dining and movie theaters. And it was a cool, you know, very trendy kind of place. And so they had a new owner. The city was investing in making the streets and the streetlights and the sidewalks and really sprucing up the area. So I said to myself, I was worried because I'm always a pessimist. And I said, man, 
people really think this place is going somewhere and maybe it will. Quite honestly, I was scared. What if it didn't go well? Then I'm owning these assets. I own these properties and I would be pissed at myself for letting that top Mm -hmm. go and then finding myself on the backside of that thinking, oh boy, I wouldn't have probably had half a million bucks. So what I did was I said to myself, do I want to sell based on the expectation that this area is up and coming and it's going to go like gangbusters? Or do I want to wait and see and hope it really does pan out? Quite honestly, I got nervous and I said, you know what? The expectations are very high here. I know that it's that way. This seems like the right time to sell it. Because if I gamble, I don't usually win when I gamble. (laughs) So if I gamble, (laughs) then I might be on the wrong side of that. You know, I just didn't want to have that happen. So that's why I sold those. In addition to that, you're probably mitigating the operational risk too, like with construction and all that sort of stuff makes it harder for tenants to get to the place. They get upset and like, you know, your tenant base might decrease or increase vacancy during that time in hopes of like that gamble in the end is going to turn out, right? That's true. That's true. There was one final thing that I learned about, remember, we're in Cleveland now. So most of the stock, the inventory in Cleveland is generally older because it's not a growing town like most parts of Florida. So one of the challenges that you have when you own an 80, 90-year-old building in Cleveland is everything inside the walls is disintegrating. And I learned that after I bought the property. And the worst thing that would happen to me is, you know, one of the tenants would call and say that my shower pressure was low. Oh, you know what that means? That means there's galvanized pipe. That means that I got to go find the elbows that are all corroded shut inside the wall somewhere. And I got to redo the whole, that's really expensive, right? Same thing would happen on the drain side. Most of my investing in my professional life has always been about mitigating risk. When I identify a risk, I figure out what can I do to mitigate it? And if I can't, let's minimize the amount of time I'm exposed to it. So I've always said, you know, these old buildings are kind of like hot potatoes, right? If you own them too long, eventually you're going to get the big expense because something big is going to happen. That was the other reason that I sold. So a lot of things kind of stacked up to make me want to sell those buildings when I did. And so what did selling those buildings help you do in the coming years? Get massively more confident because now I have done it. I remember I said, I want, I needed a plan. I thought the plan might work, but when it does, now, you know, your level of confidence, your, your certainty, you just go after it much more. And people kind of notice, oh my gosh, you know, I bet I know you did really well. You know, I wouldn't go around telling everyone I made half a million bucks. (laughs) I mean, it was 20 years ago, so I'm okay doing it now. But you know, at the (laughs) time I didn't exactly put, take out a billboard. So those were probably uh, two of the biggest things that come to mind. So after you sold those, then what did you jump on to? Did you find more value-add properties in Cleveland? We did. Yeah. So for the first 10 years of our company, we kind of hung out in Cleveland and did very short-term value-add stuff and did well. We did very well. In fact, if you're ever interested, our entire track record has been fully vetted by Veravest. It's out on their website. You can see it. But 15 years ago, I said, you know what? This is hard. Making money in Cleveland is hard. Because in order to get a tenant, I oftentimes had to steal them from you. I had to steal them from the guy next door and get them into my building. And I had to figure out how to do that. So I thought to myself, well, what if I go to Florida 
a market that's growing, a market where everybody wants to live. Because remember, back in Cleveland in those days, everybody remembered the Cuyahoga River catching on fire, right? I mean, that's not something that makes you want to live in Cleveland when you know the river caught on fire. So <laughs> 15 years ago, I don't want to beat up Cleveland too bad because it is a great town, okay? But there mm-hmm. are just a lot of people's perceptions that would make them not want to move there. 15 years ago, I said, I got to figure this thing out in Florida. And I figured it would be a much more difficult task. And it was a daunting task because there's a lot more people trying to invest in Florida with a lot more money than I had at the time. And so it was a very long, slow process to, you know, get on the ground, build credibility with the brokers, find deals that would work and get to know neighborhoods and things like that. But, you know, fast forward to today, you know, our senior management team, We've managed probably close to 16, 17,000 units. We probably own at least a couple thousand in Florida. So that 15-year pass. Remember I said it's about staying power. It's about really rolling up your sleeves and figuring out and doing the work. That's what we did, and that's why we went to Florida. What was that transition like? I mean, I know that you've said it was hard and you rolled up your sleeves, but can you kind of delve into like more so than just networking with the brokers and probably finding vendors and all that sort of stuff? But like, well, my first challenge, I'll try to get into specific. It was a big challenge. I'm looking back at it. I'm thinking, man, that was, you're kind of crazy doing that. But you know, (laughs) I got on a plane, I flew to Tampa. I love Tampa at that time. People weren't as in love with Tampa as they are today. Tampa is cool. I've always thought it was cool. So I went there, started to get to know neighborhoods. At the time, it was, you know, in the mid-2000s. So the brokers, they didn't really have time for some guy who hadn't proven himself there yet. And it was very hard to get a broker to take me seriously. I finally found a guy who was kind enough to give me the time of day. We went and looked at a lot of properties together. I ended up, did buy one from him. But the first number one challenge was building credibility in a market where there is a lot of money chasing deals in Florida. There just is. So that was a very long, slow process. I even, and this is a funny story I tell some folks, one day I had about four or five different properties that I wanted to look at. And I knew I was going to meet three or four different brokers. And and I was driving Orlando, Tampa, I don't remember where else now, but I thought, you know what? I didn't really want to do this, but I thought it might be beneficial. I said, what if I hire a driver and have the driver drive me around to these properties? First of all, that'll be more efficient for myself. That's my analytical brain trying to make sense out of it. But then I thought, you know what? It might actually help me build credibility. Now, this couldn't have played out better because as it turns out, the guy picked me up from the airport in a full limo driver suit, little black SUV, (laughs) opens the door for me. I get in the back. And we start going off the properties. And I'll never forget the first broker. We pulled up, the guy gets out, opens my door, and the broker's mouth just hit the ground. (laughs) He's like, is is this guy from New York? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. I said, he said, yeah, yeah, he said, uh, I don't remember what he said to me. I tried to play it down because I didn't want to be arrogant because I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I don't know all these neighborhoods. I said, I've got to go to five or six properties and I'm flying out tonight. And I just couldn't figure out another way to get this done this fast. He's like, oh, okay. Well, fast forward to 2021. And I bought a deal from that guy. And to this day, he still remembers that first visit, (laughs) right? He remembers it just clear as day. So I tell you, that's a funny story. But what I was trying to do was A, be efficient, but also build some credibility. And that actually went a long way 
you know, cost me five or 600 bucks to have a driver for that day. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? But it really was money well spent. It truly was, no question about it. So then I just continued to just do things, visit properties, ask good questions, do your homework, and it takes time. And then finally, when you're ready, you want this deal, then you got to talk brokers into giving you the deal because there's 10 or 15 guys standing next to you with their offers on the deal as well. So that was a challenge in and of itself. So it was really just a series of small challenges and trying to find creative ways to achieve my goal. And it takes a lot of staying power. I mean, it really, it's been 15 years. It's a lot of tough work. So now, you know, fast forward to today, all the brokers know who we are. They refer their clients to us for third-party management. The last fund that we raised, we did three deals in the fund. The first one never saw the market. The second two, we weren't the highest bidders on because they know that we can close. You see, we've done what I set out to do 15 years ago, and that was build credibility in a market that we weren't in. So I know that was a really long-winded answer to your question, but there's some really kooky stories about how we get these things done when we try to get to our goals. For our audience too, I mean, like trying to enter a new market, like when you say it was long and slow, like was that six months, a year? Like how many visits or kind of like how much money did you spend entering the market? I mean, whatever you're willing to share. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. Well, what happened, it turned out to be a little bit longer than I'd wanted for two reasons. One, 07, 08, 09 hit. Okay. Okay. You know, the market really tanked for a lot of reasons. And then secondly, personally, I went through a divorce at the end of 07. So hopefully you've never been divorced, but you know it's not something you do. You don't buy apartment buildings while going through a divorce. It's just not a good idea. So that kind of deferred it a little bit. So we ended up buying our first property in like 2013 in Florida. So it was probably six or seven years, but some of that was sideline time, right? I mean, because of the divorce. And because, you know, the market just literally tanked. The financial recession was horrible. Do you feel that six, seven, eight market is at all similar to what we're experiencing right now? Or No, no, not at all, actually. Because I was so attentive during that period, I know why 08, 09 happened. And one of the biggest things, especially in Florida, that hurt, uh, caused all these problems, you'd have people paying for apartment buildings that when you looked at the debt, there wasn't even enough income coming in to pay the loan. And it's because they weren't buying them to be an apartment building. They were buying that asset to flip it and turn it into a condo, completely different model. Mm -hmm. And they were projecting the sales price for that condo, which back then there were literally investors just bidding up the prices of these condos. Well, if you drove by these apartment complexes that were being sold as condo conversions, they were horrible. I mean, there's no way anybody would pay for this stuff. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And so what happened was the lenders took that bait and they made those loans when they knew there was less than 1.0 debt coverage. They just knew that there was negative cash flow. And when I asked them, I said, why did you do the loan? Well, number one, that's the only way we'll get a deal, right? Is if we bend our credit standards. And two, they were basing it on the fact that it's going to sell as a condo at a much higher price. And that's how they were going to get paid out. Fast forward to today, that is not what's happening now. The lenders, they don't care what you pay for a property. They're going to lend no more than 120 debt coverage or whatever their number is. And they're not going to bend. 
So if you want to overpay by $10 million, you go right ahead. It's 100% on you, right? What hurt us in the recession was that all those financial institutions, all those loans went bad at the same time. Well, see, we're not having that problem now, right? Because the people can still pay their loans and the rents continue to go up. So the short version of that story is the lenders are still paying attention to fundamentals and they did not do that back in a way. And so I wanted to make sure that you understood what I meant by fundamentals. I mean, it is so basically fundamental in the lending world that when you're lending, that they actually have enough money coming in to pay the loan. I mean, that's pretty basic. <laughs> they were making those decisions because they were sure they were going to be condos. And I remember during 0708 using the analogy over and over on the phone. It's like, you know, ring around the rosy, the music's going to stop. There's not enough chairs. And that's exactly what happened. But now yeah. that's not happening. You know, now so, that's not happening. There was another, you know, the dot-com bubble mm-hmm. right after you started investing, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. And then there was a huge real estate value run up, like right after that dot-com. What was that like for you investing in Cleveland during that time? Yeah. So the dot-com bubble, I probably wasn't aware of how it affected real estate back then because I was still trying to figure out real estate myself. So I'm probably not the right guy to answer that question. The 07, 08 effect, I'm definitely the right guy because I was there. But that other one, no, no. I do know that similarly, .com, that bubble I thought was created because people were buying up the stocks of these companies that were not profitable. And it was going to be a very, very long time before they were profitable. And finally, people just got tired of speculating and dumped them and the whole thing. That's how it crashed. Because very few of these companies were going to be profitable. I think Amazon was one of the few that came out of that and turned out to be a profitable company. Again, go back to what's happening today. In the markets we're in, rents are going up, people are moving in, we have no trouble with occupancy, and rates are going up, which is causing people to have a harder time buying homes, which drives even more people to our rental market. So the fundamentals couldn't be more different today than they were back then. And that's why I'm not worried about what's going on right now. Ken, I'm going to jump back to your like entrance into Florida. And I'm just kind of curious. So over the six to seven years, I know you kind of had a sabbatical with like the divorce of mm-hmm. seven kind of crisis or whatnot. But like, first of all, how often were you going to Florida when you were like actively looking? And then second, like, I'm sure you were underwriting deals, giving brokers feedback and that sort of stuff. Like the first one that you bought, like, how did you determined like that was the one. I think that's a really big step. It's kind of like your first property, right? Like there's some uncertainty. Are these, I mean, you're back to like the first, like are the expenses going to be the, all the research that I've done, is that going to be right? And so there's like some sort of like anticipation or hesitation to like make that jump. But I'm just wondering like, was it strictly just by the numbers or were like, you liked the location and there you saw some like upside and some like yeah, it's, things, it's a like... little of all of the above. So what I did in the beginning when I went down there is I kept underwriting as if I'm going to buy that thing tomorrow. I would underwrite it yeah. all the way through. And then I would look at the numbers and then I'd you know, figure out what the debt service is and I, it doesn't make sense. So I would call the broker and I would say, I don't understand. Can I show you my numbers? No, nobody wants to do this. Show the brokers your numbers. I'll show you my numbers. Tell me where I'm wrong. If I'm missing something, look, I'm new in this market. I get it. I'm willing to acknowledge that I might make a mistake. Please tell me what I'm not doing right. And they would never come back and say, oh my gosh, you're nuts. <laughs> they just weren't. So guess what? They knew they were fishing. They knew 
that the numbers didn't make sense, but that doesn't mean their job isn't to go find a buyer anyway. They do. So that's why I really got into trusting the numbers, trust the numbers, no matter what, just trust them. Now, when I did find my first deal, when I say I'd underwritten a lot of deals, we're talking about 50, 75, 100. When I beat stuff up, I really beat stuff up. You don't necessarily need to do that much work, but you do have to do some. And then this first property we bought in uh, Florida was in Clearwater. And if you've ever driven through Clearwater, Florida, I mean, it is extremely dense. The beach is five miles away. One of the most beautiful beaches in the United States is right there. The property is right across the street from a place called Bright House Field. It's where the Phillies did their spring training. The traffic there was just horrific because there were so many people that wanted to be there. And so in my mind, see, I'm not used to that in Cleveland. That doesn't happen in Cleveland. Okay, I'm like, oh my God, this place is nuts. This, this location is just amazing. You know, it's 10 minutes from the airport. I mean, it just was, well, maybe 20 is a little exaggeration. But, and if you know much about Tampa, there's just water everywhere. Yeah. People love yeah. to be around water. They just do. I mean, so, like St. Pete's Beach and like all those beaches up and down the coast until you get to like Clearwater. Like, it's pretty amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. They're absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it was in a good neighborhood. And it was with that very first broker that gave me the time of day many years prior. I actually bought it through him. So at that point, we had developed some trust. And, you know, I trust but verify. So I felt there was good upside here. The property, we bought it from a guy. The story's actually out on our YouTube channel, KRI Partners on YouTube. It's the Clearwater Success Story, I think is what it's called. But the property, they had bought it. It had been in foreclosure back during the recession. And they tried to flip it into condos. Didn't work out because it never did. And so they bought it. They did a lot of work to it, but they had this very strict budget. Once they spent their money, they were done. And there were still a lot of good things that could happen here. And I could see that. I could see that we could do those things because I'd done so many value-add deals up to that point. I knew that we could make it much nicer. I think when we bought it, it was, the rents were like 800 plus or minus. I can't remember exactly. And when we sold it, they were like 11 and a quarter. So we added tremendous value to that property. So I guess the answer to your question is all the experiences I had done, I had been through all the homework that I had done. And remember all during this time period, I hear about this guy buying and doing and selling and this guy buying, doing and sell. You know, I was like, Jesus, everybody's doing this. Mm -hmm. This can really happen. So there was so many things that led me to believe that this was a real deal. Now, again, you're never going to be 100% confident in anything. I mean, we're not to this day. We don't know for sure things are going to work out, but we were as sure as we could be when we did that first deal. You know, we held it for two and a half years. And I think our investor annual return was like 30% annual returns on that deal. So, you know, it always helps when your first one really knocks it out of the park. It helps. A lot. <laughs> that definitely helps. <laughs> Underwriting hundreds of properties, you know, oh, you wait mm-hmm. for the good one. If I can ask, like, what kind of were your metrics or your buy box for that first deal? Was it lower than like what your normal deal is because you wanted to get into the market or was it higher than what your normal is, what you saw in Cleveland? What my what per is, unit is my or work. like per unit or just purchase price? Yeah, like what metrics were you looking oh, at? I mean, a lot of people look at IRR, but some people look at yeah. you know the cost per bedroom or the cost per unit or price per square foot. Or I was particularly challenged because there's not a lot of rent growth. So if you don't buy it right and really get a good deal, it's going to be hard to make money. And so in Cleveland, the prices were twenty five to thirty thousand a unit. 
in Florida, I think it was like 80 a unit or something. $80,000 a unit was mm -hmm. mind blowing. I mean, that time. Was, that right now, that itself. sounds really cheap. <laughs> yes, it, does. it sure does. It sure does. I mean, so I was fighting a lot of demons here when I did this. So going from 30000 a door to 80000 a door, I learned as I continued to underwrite in, in Florida, in Cleveland, you got to underwrite from the buy all the way to the sell. In Florida, you got to underwrite from the sell back to the buy. So where can you take this property with certainty? What is it going to take to get it there? And then what can you afford to pay for it? So it was literally a backward underwriting process that I learned to do. I've never been just about IRR because value-add business plans are backloaded because that's when you make most of your money, right? And so that drives down IRR just because of the timing difference. So I've been always about annual returns. So if you give us a hundred grand, we give you back 175, 180 within a couple of two to three years. I feel like we've done a good job. That's going to turn into 25, 30, 35% annual returns. And nobody's going to complain about that. If there's an overriding metric, it's that. And we're looking for that rent upside. So I need to be able to make my mortgage payment on day one. Now we are looking for three to $400 in upside in rents. And if we get those two metrics, we're generally able to make it a home run assuming, you know, nothing goes wrong. But on that first deal, it was a really big challenge because 81 a door, I mean, nothing in Cleveland sold in 81 a door, not even new stuff. And here I was going to buy this mid eighties product and pay well, 81 a door. That sounds like a really good deal. I mean, that's the 1% rule. If it's Brenton for 800 bucks and you're paying 80 K a door, you know, with the upside of, you said, I think 325 or 315, like that's. Yeah. So part of my Cleveland background always drove me away from that rule. Yeah, and the for reason sure. Is, <laughs> in lower, in lower markets, your expenses are just super high. There you go. Yeah. yeah. See, what happened in Cleveland is I could take three properties and stack them next to each other. One of them, the tenant pays the heat. The next one had hot water heat that the owner paid. And the last one had steam heat and the owner paid. And if you use, any, you already know what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You will do awesome on one building and you'll get destroyed on the other. So I always steered clear from those 1% rules and the 50% expense yeah. rules and all, because I always felt like it could get you in a lot of trouble. Once you understand the market, then you can apply some of those averages within that market. But in Cleveland to do that would be really, really dangerous. So even though, yes, it did meet the 1% rule, at that point in my investing career, I wasn't going to live or die by the 1% rule because I felt it was too dangerous. Great stuff. Yeah, AJ and I are taking a deep, hard look at Jacksonville and the insurance expense is uh, just slightly different than uh, here in Portland. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. It's like $175, you know, 100 to $175 a year per door here. And uh, really, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, and I, my. I asked my insurer, hey, can you quote this property in Florida for me? And she's like, we don't do Florida. <laughs> yeah. So what you have to do whenever you're underwriting in Florida, you must go to your insurance agent and have them quote it for you and make sure you tell them what kind of financing you're expecting to get because they know what generally the requirements are going to be. You know, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, bridge lenders, they all have different requirements and they usually know is, but find someone that's in Florida and does it every day 
because right now the insurance market in Florida is a mess, especially after you. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of insurance companies pulling out of Florida just because of the risk associated with it. Yeah, it's kind of a cycle thing. I've watched the cycle go on now over the, you remember, I've been doing this for a while. So habitational, usually, especially in a market like Florida. So right now, people are pulling out of Florida. The number of suppliers goes way down. Price goes way up. And now they start to become very profitable that people will have a few years without hurricanes. Everybody gets excited. Let's jump back in because it's massively profitable. More suppliers in the market start to drive the price back down. So it's kind of a cycle. We just happen to be at the top of the cycle in terms of pricing. (laughs) It's what they're doing is they're just becoming more discerning about build type, you know, stick versus block. How far are you from the coast? That kind of stuff. Pre-Andrew, post-Andrew. So that's why you want to have a good solid insurance agent on your team and make sure that you understand what that number is. I mean, if you're in a flood zone, I mean, it's not uncommon to have 13, 1400 a door for insurance. I know that blows your mind from where you're at. It is, remember, our rents are quite high as well. So, yeah. Where are you looking in Jacksonville? South side, north side? Uh, yes, we're, All we're looking above. at deals, mainly uh, east, a little southwest. Yeah, no, Jacksonville's a growing market. I've been watching it since before it was a million in the MSA. What's really cool about Jacksonville is that Duval County is just so big. It's it's the biggest county in the U.S., it is, isn't yeah. it? It's the biggest, like, biggest landmass city. city. Yeah, it's unusual to have one county be that large, but they have figured out how to do that. And the city continues to grow. It's a remarkable place. It's not as sexy as Tampa or Orlando, but it's probably three. Well, four behind Miami. Miami's a completely <laughs> Miami. different. Miami. Miami is definitely the sexy yes. one yes. in Florida. No Have doubt. you looked at the Panhandle at all? Is there like Pensacola or Tallahassee? We're in Tallahassee. We have a deal in Tallahassee, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital right there. I love it. Massive demand. It's a much smaller market. So, you know, we don't have too much there. And, you know, you want to make sure you have lots of demand drivers. It's a college town. It's a state capital. And there's medical, right? So if I'm in the right spot, I can draw from all three. And that's where we are. Our property is doing remarkably well in Tallahassee. Remarkably well. So, Well, I think we are. Chris, do you have any other questions before we get to our last four? four. Okay. I will start it off with our first question, Ken. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. I could be so much further along if I would have understood what I could possibly do. And when you're young, you just don't understand that. And you don't even understand what people mean when they say get out of your own way. But your mind, your mind limits what you're able to do. So yeah, that's a piece of advice I would give myself. Ken, what was one thing that held you back? Well, it's probably a couple of things. One, confidence, not believing. Remember when I said it wasn't until I made that half a million that I really believed I could do it, right? So it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of confidence. And I think a lot of people have that issue, that concern. And the other is approaching the world in a different way, from a different perspective, realizing that, you know, we're always playing a game of chess. We have pawns and kings and bishops and rooks and all that. But Mark Cuban's game of chess looks a lot different than my game of chess, right? We're both playing chess. His pieces are just a little different than mine. And he understands that, right? I'm using that as an example. Obviously, I've never talked to Mark Cuban about this, but that's the biggest thing, right? To not understand how to 
put things in the right places and how to think of things in a way that, you know, you could actually grow a company if you put all the right pieces in place sooner. You don't think of it that way. You're used to, remember, I used to sit in a cubicle at Deloitte with tax returns stacked to the ceiling everywhere. And that's a very different chess game, right, than I play (laughs) today. So it's just understanding that. Okay. Our next question is, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, this. I mean, multifamily apartments. I did actually own three Cessna pilot centers for a while. It was fun, except I couldn't control the risk, so I sold them. But it was a lot of fun. I will tell you, it taught me a lot about how to run a decentralized business. So, you know, those two things kind of went on for a while together between multifamily real estate and running three Cessna pilot centers. Do you have your pilot's license? I do. Yeah. Once you have it, you have it forever. Yeah. I mean, I haven't flown in a long time. Our um, grandmother had her pilot's license and our cousin yeah? has his. Yeah. That's pretty cool. The world takes on a different perspective when you're yeah, five, sure does. seven, eight, 10,000 feet in the air and you're the one flying. For sure. It's very cool. Awesome. All right. Next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Whew. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about that, right? The public accounting, the lending, how has it shaped my journey? It has shaped my journey because I really, for example, when you're trying to do a loan, right? On your deal and the lender's driving you nuts. Well, I know why he's driving you nuts because I did it for five years, right? It helps me understand what they're going to look for and if you've never been a lender, you just can't even understand how they think, right? They're playing a chess game and you have no clue what chess game they're playing. You just don't understand it. So formal, informal. And then I've always been about personal development. You know, when I was in school, I thought, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait. I hate this, you know, blah, blah, blah. As soon as I got out, then the real learning began. And I've been very, very focused on self-development. So these things have changed me in massive ways. No doubt about it. If you don't mind me asking, like, what sort of like personal self-development are you referring to? Are you just like reading books or seminars or networking or like kind of all All of the above? above. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, really all of the above. I mean, I, I like watching and following different people on YouTube, listening to how they help you think about the world differently. I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of seminars. I'm trying to think, you know, I used to listen to back back in the day cassettes in your car. Yeah, they don't have cassettes anymore. Now it's podcast. <laughs> I listen to those, just like people are probably listening to this podcast, trying to figure things out. Yeah, all of the above I did. And then I tried to apply some of what I learned. The problem is you're getting so much information that you can't absorb it all. So I would just try to pick a couple of things and say, okay, let's focus on these two things. And then let's go get good at these two things and so on. So that's how I approached it. We've definitely gotten that advice before. We're big in uh, NARPM, the National Association of Residential Property Managers. And going to a convention, they always say, it's like drinking from a fire hose. And if you can pick, pick two or three things just to like implement and focus on those and then worry about the rest of the stuff after you get done. It's surprising how far you can get by just eating one bite at a time and being consistent about yes. doing it. Yeah, That's people awesome. leave these seminars and conferences and feel like you got to change everything. You can't. <laughs> you, you just can't. I mean, you want to, but that's just not how it works. You just can't yeah. do it that way. Gradual improvement, getting a little bit better in one area, then moving on to another area and getting a little bit better there. Yep. It's funny how your company can look completely different if you just try and gradually improve a few things consistently. Well, yeah. And especially if you're the one leading your company, guess what? Your company's only going to go as far as you. 
It's true. And so, you know, wherever your company is going to go is 100% depending on where you're capable of taking it. It's one of the things that I've learned. That's why I'm working so hard on myself. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Here's a chance for everyone else to learn from you. And our last question is, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Wow, I've made a ton of mistakes in my lifetime. So, geez, you're making this tough with the biggest <laughs> mistake. Let's change that word to a memorable mistake. Yeah. And I want to relate it. it to multifamily because I talk about it a lot because it's one of the things that our clients fight us about the most when, when we do third-party management. And that is when you buy a property and you have these great renovation plans, right? Well, what do you want to do the moment you close? Let's go. Let's go. Let's get out there and start renovating. Well, I did that once. But here's the problem. You think you know the property when you do due diligence. You think you know the property when you close. And then after about 30, 45 days, you learn more about that property than you knew before. And here's the mistake I made. And this was a long time ago. I spent my renovation budget. And then I learned something that I really wish I would have learned earlier because I needed to fix that. That was not negotiable, but I'd already spent my money. So of course, I went into my own pocket and funded whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was now. But it was that I remember that, oh, Jesus, what was I thinking? I could have very easily redirected that money to fix whatever that was that I didn't pay attention to. So the hardest thing for people to do, I ask our clients to do this. I tell our investors we're going to do this. Sit on your hands, 30, 60, 90 days. It's not about how long it is. It's the fact that you're going to sit on your hands for a minute, make sure you understand the property, and then make the necessary adjustments to your renovation program or your business plan for that matter, because your investors kind of expect that you're going to be flexible and you're going to, when you learn new information, you're going to adjust your plan. But so many times people don't realize that that's what their investors want to do, or that's the best thing to do. So that's probably one of the most memorable mistakes that I've made. And I won't do that again. I guarantee you. That's a great example. We haven't, I mean, most people don't talk about how quickly they implement something, but like, kind of just like taking a pause and gathering all the correct information, confirming due diligence was exactly right. And like all your assumptions are there. It's great advice. It's great. Yeah. It's hard to do though, because you have your investors. Let's go, let's go, let's go. You know, you want to get rents up because time is money, you know, and there's a lot of competing priorities, but the person who sits, don't sit too long, but sit long enough that you can be confident that there's not a major problem out there you didn't know about. Well, thank you, Ken. A lot of sage wisdom. I've learned a lot from your experience. So personally, I want to say thank you. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners as well gotten a lot out of this. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. If you're interested, we have a couple of these stories out on our YouTube channel, KRI Partners. And then go to kripartners.com slash invest if you want to just learn more about what we do and how we do it. Feel free. Okay. And if anyone wants to get a hold of you, is that the best route to it? Is. It is. So that yep. was kripartners.com okay. slash invest. Slash invest. Yep. Awesome. Wonderful. Yep. And that's on uh, right. YouTube or is that just the web? Well, that's our website. Okay. We also have a YouTube channel, KRI Partners. And of course, we're on Facebook and Twitter and everything yeah. else. Uh, everything our marketing awesome. People put us, but LinkedIn everywhere else. But you'll get the best bang for your buck at uh, kripartners.com slash invest. Awesome. Ken, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Such great advice. It's very kind of timely as my brother and I are looking into Jacksonville. So really appreciate your candor and willingness to share with us. Well, yeah. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Very cool. Thank you. 
Bye, Ken. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.